Decarbonizing the energy sector of modern day will be one of the most challenging obstacles of our time, but it will also present an opportunity for pioneers to achieve the impossible. Energy demand is increasing, and so is the need to produce that energy sustainably so we can reach our net zero goals. This is the Core Knowledge Podcast, where we sit down with the leaders and innovators in the geothermal energy space, tackling the challenges of modern day in order to make geothermal everywhere a reality for tomorrow. From shallow to deep, heat to electricity, and even healthcare to agriculture, we will bring to light the many benefits of geothermal. Join us as we journey across the globe to bring awareness to the heat beneath our feet in order to power the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Core Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Sestari, and this is the show where we are on a quest to bringing awareness to the heat beneath our feet. And uh, lately, there has been quite a bit of news in the geothermal industry uh, in terms of investment, whether that's been Baker Hughes and the multiple investments they've made. Uh, and, and it's a really exciting time to be a part of this industry and this space as it begins to enter into what some are calling the golden decade or just the geothermal decade. And so on the back of that, recently there was an announcement uh, from investment, strategic, strategic investment from Patterson UTI and Criterion Energy Partners. Um, and so some of you who have been here since the beginning may recognize that name because we had Danny Ray on the podcast uh, for an interview early on in the show. And so Yet again, today with me, I have Bridget Silva, who's uh, head of business development with Criterion Energy Partners, and uh, really excited to talk more about Criterion, but also just talk about, again, geothermal, as we always do, and kind of the, the business case for geothermal and why geothermal and why now, and just get some insight from her and also get a little bit of, the, of what Criterion's planning to do on the back of this investment. Um, and so just really excited and honored to have Bridget with us. So thank you, Bridget, so much for joining us today on the show. Thanks, Nick. It's really great to be here. Love listening to your show. And so very excited to actually participate in the show as well. Yeah, no, it's great. Super excited and and really, uh, really love Criterion. Really love the management team there and, and have become what I would say is fast friends are just fond uh, of all of the, those working there. And so just excited to speak with you. And so as we get started, just uh, would love to have an introduction to yourself, kind of your background and just kind of how your career path led you to, to working on, on geothermal with Criterion. Today's episode is brought to you by JRG Energy. A special thank you to our inaugural Core Knowledge podcast sponsor. JRG Energy is a renewable energy project management consultancy working on geothermal projects around the world, whose mission is to provide value and develop relationships through a full suite of specialized services for the global renewable energy market. They are driven by innovation, experience, and integrity and strive daily to display these values through all aspects of their work. JRG Energy provides customized energy solutions, project management, engineering, technical support, consulting, and training for the renewable energy sector. JRG Energy has an extensive geothermal portfolio of projects around the world, ranging from World Bank reports to well intervention work, and they support the core knowledge mission to bring awareness to the heat beneath our feet in order to power the future. If you want to find out more, you can visit www.jrgenergy.com. JRG Energy, delivering solutions today for a better tomorrow. 
thanks, Nick. I'm glad to share that. So, um, so my background is a bit unconventional for probably what you'd think where a geothermal team would come from, but it has a cross functional, cross-industry focus, uh, starting with technology. So I actually started my career in the tech space, working for uh, Silicon Valley type companies. My career led me to analytics and data science and looking at multiple data points in different ways to apply new industry innovations. And then most of that was done along the energy value chain. So looking at everything from the downstream side of things from the electric utility, um, I've had the ability or the opportunity to get in very early on smart grid technologies, looking uh, at, at different ways to distribute energy and different ways to leverage data management, for example, to um, to bring all these energy sources together and create energy efficiency all the way through operations and risk management with chemical plants, working with upstream oil and gas, uh, specifically with bankers looking at valuations of those assets and determining in the lower 48, where where are the big plays? Where do we put our money? And so um, that oil and gas uh, piece is so crucial to this geothermal piece. And along the way, uh, my background has been a lot of cross-functional teamwork, working with inventors, working with scientists, working with petroleum engineers, working with geologists, electrical engineers, and also working with financial people and business development people to figure out how do we make this industry better. Um, and so the companies that I worked with were RS Energy Group. A lot of you might um know that group. I've worked with Lockheed Martin, Hewlett Packard, some of the big names out there. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really, you know, it's an, it's like you said, it is different than, you know, probably most of the people that I've had on, on the show, whether it's just been, some people have been geothermal for life. Some have been oil and gas now geothermal or engineering of some sort. So that's a really fascinating vantage point. Uh, that is a, a different one, but yet just as integral and key to not just geothermal, but obviously the entire energy uh, picture and, and the entire energy economy and how it how it operates. Um, and so I think that kind of sets it up perfectly uh, to lead into the next piece of sort of want to kind of talk about uh, Criterion Energy Partners specifically, but also just why the management team at Criterion is is unique and kind of why that makes you know, the team at Criterion Energy Partners, uh, you know, it sets you up for uh, something different than maybe what some of the other companies are doing. I love this question because we are so different um, because of the culture and the management team we have here. I, for example, found myself coming into geothermal through a natural progression, like I just explained focused on U.S. shale revolution and having that be a foundational progress of geothermal. Um, the entire team really kind of looks at the world like a big puzzle, like a Rubik's cube, if you could um, go with that analogy. And not everyone knows how to solve the Rubik's cube, but the ones that do, they're fast and they're precise and they're really good at it. And so I ended up in geothermal because that's the way my brain thinks is is fast and precise and being able to apply analogies. And I could say that about all of my peers from different vantage points. So um, for example, we have Denise Knight, who is our head of geology and new ventures. And Denise has experience in exploration success and also has experience 
and really de-risking some very successful developments by leveraging as much insight as she can find before she actually starts to determine where is she going to go next. And so when we think about Denise from a new venture standpoint, she's not just looking at what does the rock say? She's looking at what does the rock say along with what are analogies we can draw around this type of rock? What is the above ground risk? She collaborates with Jeff Tater, our head of engineering around what might this look like in a production environment? And we really do that research and, and innovation work up front and de-risk projects. And that is, is really what um, makes Denise really great. Jeff and Danny, I know you've talked to Danny before, but Jeff and Danny have managed significantly sized projects. So when we think about the size of the capital projects that they've managed, they can anticipate what might happen, those black swan events that might happen, and really not necessarily know that that's what's going to happen in this situation, but they're very quick to react. And, and they've demonstrated this time and time again in their, in their uh, fields. And they're very open to having conversations, not only on the geology side, but then also thinking about what are the different business development aspects we could bring into this to make our solution most more cost effective, um, really speed up supply chain? You know, they're looking at it from multiple vantage points, not just the engineering aspects. And then when we take Sean Marshall, um, I don't know if Sean's been on the show before, but Sean comes from the banking world. And he and I actually met when he was at Credit Suisse. His ability to really kind of take apart um, the financial aspects of the value chain and figure out where can we speed things up, where can we cut costs in conjunction with learning from Jeff and Danny what they can do. If we could take 30 seconds out of this process or if we could take a year out of this, you know, this product that needs to go down whole, what does that do to the financials? And then and then from my vantage point, you know, I look at everything business development. So it's all these things and how do we message that and how do we talk to investors about it and how do we bring it to life um, and how do we get customers excited about it? Um, so the management team at Criterion Energy Partners is really very special. Um, I would say that we're capturing multiple diverse um, ideas in a bottle and creating magic that I don't know is very easy to capture without having that open, collaborative, creative experience that all comes together, works together one project at a time. Hey there, everybody. It's your host, Nick Sestari. And just wanted to announce for those of you who don't know that Core Knowledge will be the official media partner, one of the official media partners for the upcoming Geothermal Rising Conference. Uh, this August, and incredibly excited to be a part of such an amazing event that is just focused on spreading the the greatness of geothermal and with amazing talks and conversations around the studies that are being done, and just in general, shaking hands with fellow people in the industry, helping to educate and just further drive geothermal towards the goal of geothermal everywhere. And so just wanted to put out a couple notes and things for you out there if you're interested in the conference uh, that registration will be coming soon it's not up on the website yet uh, but i will link the website in the show notes and everything you need to know is there 
in terms of dates for anything. If you're trying to submit a poster or an abstract or, or anything as that, or getting a booth for your company. And so, uh, yeah, we'll have that on there, on the website, so you can just access it there. And again, it's this August, the 28th through the 31st at the Peppermill Resort Spa Casino in Reno, Nevada. So get look forward to it. I'll be there, set it up for live broadcasting, maybe even a vlog style of the event and looking to connect with all of you out there if you're going to be there. And we'll love to interview you if you'd like to sit down and have an interview with Core Knowledge and myself, who is Core Knowledge. And uh, yeah, really just excited about this. So you'll be hearing about this uh, on every episode every week. So in case you miss one here and there, don't worry, I'll be keeping you up to date on the latest. But uh, yeah, excited to be partnering with this amazing event and look forward to seeing all of you there. And so um, now enjoy the rest of this episode. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, that's really, that's a, an amazing nod to the team. And obviously I've, I've spent some time with Danny and Sean and just even from the minute that met the team at Criterion in the early days, just already getting to hear them talk about how they already had a plan to bring the cost down to a certain point and had this map and roadmap. And it was, uh, it was really encouraging, but also kind of just, I was sort of just awe-inspired to be like, wow, they really are taking this by the reins and, and really approaching it from a, you know, a much different perspective, obviously with their given backgrounds, um, but also with just such a fervor and excitement of like, no, I think this is possible. Uh, and we've done things that are equally as grand or, or seem really hard or complex. And, and they've seen those come to completion and success. And so I think, um, yeah. And again, I mean, we'll get to it later, but the, the fact of oil and gas and just the, experience that it offers and the technology that's there and just the the learnings that you can gain from a career there that can then lean over into geothermal and really provide what I think is, I mean, a, a leading edge and kind of a competitive advantage of just knowing um, subsurface and surface and kind of that whole realm. Obviously, geothermal comes with plenty of its own challenges that are different, but, you know, I want to, in that transition to what you refer to as a nod and a wink. And so I want to, I want to kind of talk about your perspective on the energy transition and kind of how, again, leaning on what we just talked about, which is the uniqueness of the management team and how each member is bringing a, a, a great perspective and a unique one in that and helping to drive this. So I uh, would love to hear kind of that perspective from, from your vantage point. Nick, this is such a cool industry. I mean, think about everything that the energy industry does for the world, right? We couldn't do, I, our lives would be very different without energy and oil and gas makes up a big piece of that. And so oftentimes when I do my social media posts and I put a nod and a wink, um, it's really an in-between the lines way of saying we are the energy transition. We're all the energy transition, all of us. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, and these giants are, are incredible. So not in a wink, I'm going to, just for the core knowledge audience, I'm going to spell it out. The nod. The oil and gas industry is made up of some of the smartest, most creative, most pragmatic, most talented individuals on the planet, hands down. They've managed to create the most transferable and economically feasible energy source ever. 
Um, this is why oil and gas is so pervasive. And that, by the way, it's also used to make products that make our lives better. So think about all of the chemical feedstocks that you require. And while no de- good deed goes unpunished, and I think we, we like to think about it that way, no good deed goes unpunished, right? Yeah. Um, we, we just have to recognize the ingenuity of the industry and we can't practically seek to solve climate change by a full out replacement of oil and gas. We have to look at how do we support the oil and gas industry to continue doing what it does for us, meeting our demand, creating all these amazing products that help us in the ways of medical technology and um, better houses and you know, better infrastructure. We have to think about that. And then we have to help oil and gas to thrive in what I like to call omni-source energy production. Now, this is a Bridget term. I don't know that it's out there anywhere, but an omni-source energy production is let's leverage all the energy we can in the best way for that energy in conjunction with one another. And let's recognize that along the way, we have to help decarbonize the traditional energy. There's way too much at stake if we don't. The wink. Okay, so here's the wink. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes back to what I said, Nick. We're standing on the shoulders of giants in an effort to reach the lofty goals placed on us when the IPCC delivered the news that reaching a 1.5 degree Celsius global temperature threshold is imminent. It's the biggest challenge of our lifetime. And the analogy I like yeah. to think of when I think yeah. of where we are right now is prohibition. Um, For anybody that has ever spent time looking at what happened during prohibition, you know, prohibition was in general a bad deal for the economy. It was a bad deal. The Great Depression is actually what largely ended prohibition. But in that crisis, and crisis in general is an opportunity for innovation, right? In that crisis, you had all of these alcohol distillers that were like, what do I do with my chemistry skills? Well, guess where the refinery came from? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You had all of these people that were really good at making alcohol that became really good at making these petrochemical products. And as we consider that transfer of skills from then to now, the transfer of skills is here. And it's not just transfer of skills coming from oil and gas to geothermal. It's transfer of skills coming from the electric utility to geothermal, from the chemical manufacturers, from, you know, we have a lot of, there are going to be fluids that we need down hole that we need the chemical industry to get behind, for example. There are going to be steel parts and there are going to be, um, if there's a new supply chain out there that we need to develop, but we need to do it pragmatically. And so when I say a nod and a wink, we don't have to start from scratch. We should not start from scratch. What we should do is we should leverage what's been put in place that has worked and we should do it pragmatically so that we can accelerate the results of geothermal energy. Yeah. Wow. No, that's no, that's really that's really great. And it's a really, you know, I think well articulated and eloquent, like just way of putting it in terms of I think too often there's it's pitted against one another in terms of the energy transition of all these energy sources are looked at as a you know competing against one another or trying to take what the you know where oil is now is going to be replaced by x y and z or where this is is now going to be this and i think that's almost sometimes regressive and pushes us backwards instead of forwards because even with the geothermal passion and obviously doing this podcast and talking to the people involved in the day-to-day of making geothermal everywhere a reality. It's it's about 
working together with a yeah oil and gas and also even solar and wind and trying to work with them working with the the grid to make sure that everyone's has a seat at the table which is you know been a problem in terms of geothermal for a while and so it's it really is a collective effort uh, that if we you know focus too much on competing with one another and trying to replace fossil fuels i mean it's just not that's not the goal that's not the point the point is we couldn't be doing this podcast right now without uh, fossil fuels or certain things i mean it sounds fun it's you know there's things that we just enjoy in our daily life that would just frankly not exist if all of a sudden tomorrow morning there were no more fossil fuels so i really i really like that uh a nod and a wink and that the uh core knowledge uh, listeners out there you guys got a a unique listen in and a view into Bridget's uh, explanation. <laughs> and uh, you should feel very honored that you got to, uh, to be some of the core group that gets to listen to her, uh, you know, ex- explanation. So I think, you know, I think it's already setting itself up and people can already probably get, uh, you know, can get a sense of and, and really already understand from even when Danny was on and now obviously having you on and you know already for this brief uh part we've talked about the the culture at criterion i think is is definitely unique and something that sets it apart um but even even in the broader sense obviously we just talked about the nod and the wink and navigating the energy transition what does it mean how do we properly navigate it and so you know what kind of culture isn't is needed and necessary for you know in general how to succeed in the energy transition but also when you look at criterion and your team and the goals that you have set you know what is necessary in that in that sense for a culture yeah um you know it's it's interesting you you mentioned something i'm going to go back to it then i'm going to tie it into the culture here at criterion energy partners and that's you know having a seat at the table and collaborating across multiple aspects of the energy value chain has been a challenge. And I think the reason it becomes a challenge is two, twofold. One is fear, fear of the unknown, fear of if if I support that, I have to give up this. You know, we're all competing for capital. Um, we're all competing for market share. Um, but the other side of it is kind of what uh, it, it's it's kind of what you were talking with Taylor Maddie about last week, I think, when you when you talked to him at Baker Hughes and it was the, the knowledge or the insight. So what can quell that fear, calm that fear is the more insight you have on how the world is changing and how energy demand is growing and how the applications or use cases of each energy are going to play out the more you can start to see pragmatically that this makes a lot of sense. And so um, when I think about the culture at Criterion Energy Partners, I I have to stop and think about the world in general. And my husband's a history teacher, so we're going to pick on Hector for a minute. Um, He's a history teacher and he spends a lot of time talking about his history lessons, which is not interesting to me at all, with the exception of this. I am a big fan of patterns. I like to see the patterns that happen in history. And based on those patterns, what can I then perceive the future might look like? And when I look back at the patterns in history, based on all the things he tells me, um, two things kind of come to mind. Think Pearl Harbor, think 9-11. Okay, so Pearl Harbor and 9-11 both had this concept of the failure of the imagination. We didn't imagine this could happen, so it's not happening. And when we think about corporations and we think about specifically the energy industry, it's so big and it has um, such a deep-seated history. And we've been doing the same 
things certain ways for so long that sometimes it's the failure of the imagination that impacts our ability to move innovations forward. And so when I think about the Criterion Energy Partners culture, every single person in the organization has this ability to be pragmatic and say, um, I don't want to do something um, for the right reason. I don't want to do it because of the expense, but then turn around and say, okay, but how could I take that expense and make it a smaller expense? Or, you know, that's not going to work because, you know, of above ground risk. Okay, well, how could we take that hurdle and overcome it? And so every person on the team is a problem solver, but they're not a problem solver in a silo. The best thing about this team is that we meet frequently as a team and we really challenge one another and we really listen to one another and we really focus on um, everything from the subsurface to the surface to the business development. Who's the customer? What's the, what is it that the industry is telling us is the reason geothermal can't go everywhere. Mm. And we hear it's the cost argument. It's the water resource argument. We have the geography argument. We have the federal funding argument. We have the awareness argument. We have the argument, the argument. And it's like, okay, great. That's fantastic. Like that Rubik's cube that we talked about, how do we solve this problem? And we just throw spaghetti against the wall. (laughs) And sometimes we're just so courageous and we lean in and we say the most ridiculous things. But then sometimes those ridiculous things turn into, but what about this? But what about this? And and we're per, we're, we persevere through these roadblocks. And I would say in order to innovate in this industry, you have to be patient, you have to have perseverance, but you have to be really creative and you have to keep moving forward. And that's what this team does. Yeah. Wow. No, that's really good. And it's a good point to bring up of all the yeah, all the, I mean, I don't want to call them excuses sometimes, but the argument for and against, you know, geothermal sometimes is is all these things that, as you mentioned, patterns or even just, you know, I've brought it up many a times, probably to some of the listeners' annoyance that the the oil and gas industry, I mean, if we just look back over the course of the last 10 years and what we saw, as you kind of talked about in the, your intro of the shale revolution and what has happened here, you know, I I just can't get over the fact that I'm like, the, nobody thought that that was possible. You know, we'll, we'll lean on what you just said, the failure of imagination. I mean, no one was looking at tight shales and saying that those will be, uh, you know, will produce, you know, a ton of oil, become a net exporter and become one of the world leaders in oil and gas production. It was, it was almost looked at as it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way that's feasible. Engineering wise, I mean, the geology doesn't make sense. There's no way that that's produced, you know, all these things that the naysayers or the all the list of why you shouldn't do it. And then here we are. And I mean, you just can't help but be like, well, wow, I'm so glad that there was someone or a group of people that chose to pioneer the efforts and go against, not go against, but just push through and say, you know what, we're going to persevere and we're going to prove that you can do this and you can do it economically and it can be a game changer. And I, I really like to relate that to geothermal because I think that's kind of where geothermal has, I mean, it's been around for a long time, obviously it's been produced and conventionally in in a lot of places, but yeah, the argument of, well, it can't be done everywhere else. It's just got to be where there's near surface heat and all this stuff. And, you know, it's just that, that argument that I'm like, yeah, you, but that's what innovation is for. And that's what people like the team at Criterion and some of these amazing people I've had on the show are, are doing. They're, 
they're persevering through it and not letting those arguments, you know, convince them that it can't be done. Um, well, those arguments create the competitive advantage, right? You know, yeah. if nobody else has figured it out yet, that means this is our opportunity to create competitive advantage and do it in a way that really brings value to the whole industry. We're not interested in competing against other geothermal companies. We're interested in the ships rising with the tide and solving problems in ways that can drive standardization into the industry such that we can meet the energy demand cost effectively with low carbon solutions. And um, and and so I love these arguments because they give us ammunition, right? They give us yeah. an opportunity. Yeah, no, that's true. It's it's flipping it on its head and looking at it not as a negative or a or a thing against you, but instead as kind of the fuel to where you go and look for solutions to answer those problems or to tell someone we have an idea on how to how to target this and and talk to those investors and those policymakers and those people who have the argument and and show them that there is a way. And so I think one of the arguments you kind of touched on a few of them. One of the arguments, obviously, is that. I mean, there's, there's a lot high capital, but you know, one is obviously the risk of geothermal in terms of when we're talking about these exploration projects or these new resources, or even in the EGS case, you know, th- there's a lot of associated risk, which is a normal thing in exploration in oil and gas, but sometimes this gets treated maybe differently, I'll say, but how do, how do we go about, you know, you mentioned a little bit about Denise and the team and kind of their, how they take a full scale holistic approach on on risks, not just in their own silo, but everything involved. And so, you know, what do we do in this kind of how do we manage the risk? How do we look at it pragmatically? How do we innovate? How do we kind of take on some of these main risks and some of these main arguments and kind of, um, yeah, I mean, kind of just, I guess, get over that hump or sort of bridge that gap. And there may not be, I don't, you know, they're not direct answers to all these yet. We're obviously, (laughs) but I'm just, I'm just asking more out of a, you know, just a perspective question of obviously there's, these are still being worked on, you know, as we speak, but obviously how do you, how do you approach risk as a team and obviously not let it, not let it scare you away from something um, or, or just articulate it properly when you're going to seek investment or partnership in a project? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm going to give you Bridget's view of the world. So I get to sit on my soapbox for a moment. Um, we do, we are very much a risk management focused team and in the history, the experience we have and, and what we've seen helps a lot with that. I think if you're going to go and do a big project like this, you have to have experience doing big projects like this. And, and our team, as I'd mentioned, does have quite a bit of experience in doing this. Denise, from looking at it from a data vantage point, I come from the world of tech and data analytics and, you know, IP and, and Jeff and, and Danny and Sean all come from various aspects of looking at these big projects and building risk models and knowing what those risks are. But there's a lot of industry knowledge as well that if you pay attention, you can see what others are running into. And we are very hungry, like sponges for industry insights. So we're constantly watching projects and why is that project working? Why is that project not working? Um, we we did a study, um, for example, there's a, a DOE study that happened in the early, I want to say it was like maybe the the early 80s or something in, um, in Brazoria County, the DOE funded this uh, project where they determine, you know, you can create geothermal energy here in in this Brazoria County region in these geo-pressured systems. And 
we read the entire document to figure out what went wrong. Why did this not get funded again? And by the way, it was a corrosion issue. So Mm. that's a problem. We know that that's a problem. So we're going to mitigate against that. And when you think about those analogies, it's no different than like, say you're, you're looking for oil and gas and you want to say, what's the best way to produce this well. And, you know, for a while we were all talking about, um, in the, in the Gulf coast, we were talking about water flood analogies and does that really work and things like that. And so you can, you can take those parallels and those arguments and bring those, um, those to the table to just educate you. Um, the second thing that's really important for us is to take that knowledge and put it into some sort of systemic screening mechanism. So we want to understand all the details about um, below ground, you know, subsurface risk, above ground risk. Um, what are the potential um, downfalls or gotchas from anal- analogs we can derive? We want to see all of that in one pane of glass. And so we are and have built proprietary screening system that helps us determine those risks and actually um, do something about it in the planning process. The other thing that's really out there and evident are what are the um supply chain risks, for example, is a big issue for geothermal in general. Purchasing power isn't there yet and therefore cost is high and supply chain might not, I mean, it takes 18 to 24 months just to make an organic Rankin cycle turbine. You know, how do we mitigate those risks of having our timeline slip, et cetera? And so we are thinking about that and looking at strategic partnerships. What sort of partnerships, you know, you have power in numbers. And if you have enough partners behind your effort to help you with those supply chain issues or to help you with um, the the technology that you need, then that can help you reduce that risk as well. Um, What other risks are there? I mean, there are risks that we don't really know what what energy costs are going to look like, you know, when I'm talking to, you know, and our business model is different, right? We want to take as much complexity out of the business model as possible. And when you look at the, the jurisdiction that we're in, I'll call it a jurisdiction. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, We're in the Texas deregulated power market. So, Mm -hmm. you know, is it really smart for us to say, let's go play in the Texas dereg market at low costs? Or do we say, let's, turn that prism on its head as well. And what is a better way to approach the Texas market? And when we think about it from that vantage point, we say, what are the headwinds that our customers are trying to navigate? How do we get in front of that? Because if we can get in front of the headwinds our customers are trying to navigate, then we have even more power to reduce this risk. We have even more behind our success. We have so many people now supporting this and real pragmatic applications. And um, and then, Nick, I guess the final thing I'll say about risk management is that we're not looking at this from the vantage point of let's go create the new shiny object. Yeah. We really are leveraging tried and tested and true technologies that exist today. We're not going to create the shiny object on pilot, you know, phase one. We are just going to do what we know and we know how to do it the best. And so as we do that, we're going to learn something and then we'll be able to apply a a little more technology, a little more innovation, a little more risk. 
we'll be able to reduce costs, then we'll be able to apply a little more technology, a little more innovation, a little more risk. And that's the way we're approaching our roadmap as well. We're approaching the roadmap from the standpoint of let's do what we really, really know. Let's prove this. And then once we've proven it, let's take it a little bit further and then let's take it a little bit further so that it's a cumulative approach to innovation instead of doing everything in one fell swoop. Hey there, everybody. It's your host, Nick Sestari. Just wanted to take a break here uh, from this episode. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in thus far. Hope you're enjoying uh, this wonderful episode. I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by JRG Energy, delivering solutions today for a better tomorrow. So thank you, JRG Energy, and enjoy the rest of this amazing episode. And thank you for your support. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that, I mean, great summary on the, I mean, risk and just the, the vantage point, obviously, that obviously there's not solutions yet to everything, but just kind of gives perspective to, to, to geothermal and obviously to the fact that while it is different and has its own risks and its own things that you're going to encounter with projects that are different than oil and gas or mining or other subsurface type, you know, extractive industries, it's still, there's a lot of things that have been invented and you know, created from a water management, corrosion inhibitors, and all kinds of things that are out there that it's just a matter of, um, like you like you said, yeah, partnering up and looking and making the strategic partnerships in order to help um, lower the risk, but also help with the cost. And so I think that's, that's great. And it's a great outline. And um, yeah, not trying to overreach on the first pilot and just taking the approach that by well 10 or project number 10 will be way better at this and understand a lot more to where we can really um, get down that cost curve and, and allow a little more risk. And it's no different than, yeah, any other uh, first projects sometimes are a little bit more capital intensive and risky. And then as you move, you, know, you have to learn, you got to do the first one in order to do the 20th one. So I think that's, um, it's exciting and it's, um, yeah, it's just a really encouraging um, yeah, talking with you, but hearing from uh, your criterion's perspective and just about the really peeling it back and just looking at it differently of why hasn't geothermal succeeded? Why hasn't, like, why haven't some of these projects, you know, some of the past EGS projects or some of these things just kind of, they've been proposed and then just kind of fall flat. And it's kind of, you, it's, uh, you know, it is a question of, well, what happened there? Why did that, you know, was mm-hmm. it the wrong narrative? Was it the wrong this or that. And so, um, kind of piggybacking off that idea, you know, why now is like geothermal getting kind of a revival or, or more of a, you know, seat at the table, more eyes looked on, you know, still need more, but why is the direction, you know, why is now kind of this time for geothermal to take advantage of, you know, this current situation we're in with obviously energy transition, the whole global picture, um, yeah, I mean, from your perspective, why? What makes now different than you know, ten, fifteen years ago? So I think if you look across the world, everybody has a different reason for why now, but we all can kind of align on the output for in twenty eighteen from the um, 
IPCC and their policy to policymakers or their their update to policymakers and then the update that just happened in 2021. Um, the climate change is it climate change is not I wouldn't characterize it and I don't want to get too political here. I wouldn't characterize it as an agenda. It's it's basically an output of data that's coming out that, you know, there are coral reefs that are dying and, you know, there are things like this that are happening. The the world is changing and it has been. It has been for, you know, years and years and years and generations and generations. But that doesn't mean that we want our quality of life to change. You know, we don't want to have forced migrations, things like that. And so when we look across the world, we have have this issue. I think when when I think about it from um, from a global and a socio-political and an economic vantage point, you know, we have an increase in the population. The population is expected to grow 40 percent by 2050. We have emerging markets and emerging economies that have not had the opportunity to really grow. And so, you know, parts of the world really want to build a middle class and they have to have power and energy to do that. So the demand for energy is just scaling and scaling and scaling. But then you also have this thing on the side, this 1.5 degree C and what happens when we exceed that threshold. And so, it's a balancing act, right? It's probably, I would say it's definitely the biggest issue of our lifetime. We are living in such an amazing time to do something powerful for our children and generations to come. Um, and that's that's incredible, but it needs to be done. So how do we continue to grow economies? I'm not a believer in this reduce the economy to reduce the carbon. I'm a mm. big believer in reduce the econ or increase the economy and reduce the carbon. And so I think there are a lot of people in the world that feel this way. I don't know very many people and I've heard some Nick, but I don't know very many people that say reduce the economy to reduce yeah. the carbon, right? Most people are, I want my things and I want my quality of life and I want, I want my safety and my security and and by the way, I want people in other countries that are maybe third world countries becoming more developed countries. I want them to be successful and I want them to have a middle class because that creates more markets for everybody, right? Yeah. And so it's it's a point of crisis. Change happens in, in, in the point of crisis. And I'd say why geothermal hasn't really taken the foothold that it needs to is, is kind of twofold. One is that big capital outlay that is required combined with the risk of not knowing, is this going to last me 30 years? Like I predict it will. Yeah. Um, and we've seen evidence that in some situations it did not work and that hinders people from moving forward. But the other side of it is that a lot of money has gone into kind of what I'd call the Band-Aid, right? Yeah. The intermittent renewable sources. And that Band-Aid is helpful. Don't get me wrong. It helps in peak times and um, you know, I'm a huge believer in any sort of investment we can make in microgrids and solar wind, you know, tidal, whatever, whatever um, you call it. But to create reliable, uninterrupted baseload power and indirect heat, you have to now look at geothermal is your solution. It's the only one, right? So investors, let's talk a little bit about investors. Um, why are investors not funneling money in this direction faster, um, as fast as they did solar, as fast as they did wind? And I think it's twofold. I think it is the risk, but I think it's also the education and knowing yeah. 
Um, so how do we mitigate that? Um, and we do it with demonstrations. You know, um, I, I think I've heard on your podcast and maybe others that there's a big push for federal subsidies and um, federal subsidies have really helped in the solar and wind areas. And why doesn't geothermal get more subsidies? And, you know, subsidies are in oil and gas and, and geothermal should get some of that, too. That's great. I'm fine with that. But what we really need from a federal standpoint is we need demonstration money. We need to go and show, as soon as we go and show that this geothermal thing works in geopressured systems and that we can take it, you know, this is actually the bridge that takes us everywhere else in the world. As soon as we demonstrate that, we'll have the private investors get excited about it and want to funnel the money there too. So um, my big ask is, you know, how do we do that? And then, I think I think the other thing when we talk about why now, Nick, and I'm, tell me if I'm going too long here. No, but. You're fine. No, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good stuff. The other the other thing about why now is that the world has changed in so many ways, and this um, this evolution of not to take it to too deep of a topic, but but I'm going to go there. This evolution of hybrid warfare. I mean, if you think about nation states and how they're communicating and dealing with one another, it's very different than how it was a long time ago and even a couple decades ago. It's not it's not necessarily a cold war anymore. We have um, on the national defense side, and this is where my Lockheed Martin experience comes in on the on the national defense side. We have, you know, um, energy being such a powerful tool for economic stability and for national security, that energy has become the number one target for cyber warfare, for example. Yeah. Critical infrastructure is a, is a huge issue there. And if you can, if you can really start to whittle down um, a, a community or society's confidence in their energy supply, if you can whittle down their confidence in their economic situation, then you can start to really unravel uh, a nation. And so I think why now is we see what's going on in Ukraine. We see how it's impacting oil prices and feedstock prices. We see, um, you know, what happened with the pandemic and how that impacted um, the world. And so when we, we think about how do we protect our nation, we have to have a really well-defined energy security policy. And when I look back to when was the last time we did that, it was in 2005. So the Energy Policy Act of 2005, lots changed since 2005. Yeah. You know, I would dare say that that's an area we need to focus and it's crucial for national security. Um, in, I tell Danny all the time and he laughs at me and Sean, I'm like, geothermal energy production is our patriotic duty because it helps our nation with energy security, yeah, security of supply. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's all, all of that is, is, I mean, was absolutely, you know, couldn't have summarized it better. I think there's a lot of answers to the why now and, and not not taking for granted all the work that's been done in the history in the past of geothermal and even the ones that were unsuccessful or just didn't quite catch the right swing or the right moment because as oil prices go up and down, different focuses were at different places. But I think, um, yeah, I love the piece about growing the economy and, you know, not, not saying, oh, we just need to shrink it and do all these things to restrict everything because truly geothermal, that's what excites me so much about 
I mean, energy in general, like we've already talked about, has provided access to things and, and quality of life that just were never would never have been possible without it. But also looking at places like Kenya and some of these countries and even Iceland and, and some of these countries that are just really leading the way and in, in doing some amazing work with becoming, you know, having their own domestic supply of energy and leaning on their resources at home to, to try and A, eliminate the need to depend on other countries, but also eliminating that price fluctuation that can sometimes completely shatter an entire civilization. I mean, even in Europe before what's happening in Ukraine, I mean, gas prices were through the roof. And, you know, for some families that was already causing quote unquote energy impoverished homes that weren't even able to afford their gas bill, um, you know, in their home. And so I just look at where geothermal can enter into the market in these places to help with energy security, but, you know, domestic supplies, but also just the, even though it may be expensive on the development, at least right now, or some of that, the overall benefit and cost avoided that you can kind of achieve with geothermal, it has to be realized in some of that, that conversation as well, especially with the investors and, and federal for policy and those things to be like, look, it, it may look more expensive today than solar and wind, but also look at the all the other benefits that it can offer that have to make the cost look look better. So I, I really, really love that piece. And just when I look at the global picture and think about all these places where people have never had energy or the common, you know, heating and cooling in their homes, but live near geothermal. Uh, well, everyone lives on top of geothermal, but whether or not it's actually being accessed is the... So I, I'm excited to, you know, I really think that it it's going to be, you know, a big thing. And obviously it has, it still has some work to be done, but obviously uh, teams like Criterion and others are, are really pushing for it. And then you have advocacy organizations. And I think that's huge because it has to get a seat at the table and policy and for permitting and for other things that need to help it be more streamlined than it, than it currently is in, in certain aspects. But um, you, know, you know, you know, Nick. I was thinking as you were talking. Um, I'm going back to the history lessons that my husband teaches me all the time. But um, <laughs> when I, <laughs> we can actually look domestically too a bit at history and try and, and figure that the infrastructure that we have today. So the Rural Electrification Act um, is where the government in 1936 decided we're going to run power lines, these high voltage transmission lines all the way to rural areas and make sure everybody has access to electricity. Mm. Right. And, and when I spent time working with the utilities on the smart grid topic, looking at sensor technologies to try to figure out how do we automatically heal the grid if it fails or something like this, this came up of, okay, but why would you put these sort of sensor technologies along the grid all the way to these rural areas, but you can't leave anybody behind, right? And so, yeah. and then what happens when that infrastructure ages and how much does that cost? And and it's almost like, you know, as that infrastructure continues to age and it needs to be replaced domestically, that's almost a business. I mean, it could potentially even be the business case for rural electrification with geothermal or, you know, looking at different ways to power these communities versus replacing a ton of infrastructure. Um, I want to say I was talking to a banker a couple of years ago about the money that's going to go into 
utility, you know, electric utility infrastructure and was like, we built the grid in a hundred years using this much money. Um, we're going to have to replace it in five years using oh, this yeah, much I, more money. It's like, how do we, how do we do that? And so maybe we don't do it by running um, lines and poles and, yeah. you know, maybe we do, but I think it's a business case we definitely should address. Yeah, I think it's it's I've heard it on, you know, some other podcasts that talk about just the energy picture and and also in some books that I've read about the idea that we're not going to have to be well, I don't say not going to have to, but just the idea of not transmitting, inter, you know, electricity as far and just building to suit the needs of maybe that area whether it's That's even in the commercial the commercial or industrial sense where you've got these big plants that usually aren't really some of them are obviously near major hubs of of people, but other times, you know, they're kind of in this just their odd end wherever. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, well, why don't why not just put one plant that takes care of those that infrastructure and then you deal with everyone else on a different grid so that that way it's um yeah, I think there's just a lot of flexibility to it. There's a lot of resiliency that can be added. And there was actually an article uh I just posted on the Core Knowledge LinkedIn page for those that want to go check it out. But there's a community in Austin. Uh, that is being developed all using geothermal um, heat pump. Basically, it's going to be, you know, not powered, but it's going to be heated and cooled all on a system of heat pumps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that was, you know, Bo- Boise, Idaho has been doing that in their downtown for a long time. But it's it's um, really cool to see that it's it's gaining traction, A, but B, that that is becoming more of a reality of, of like you mentioned, the business case that, well, hey, we don't have to worry about installing new infrastructure for the gas uh, to get here for their heating we just just build this community fully on its own geothermal heat pump system um and i think that's a really unique um and really cool cool development honestly it's uh and it saves some of the cost on the homeowner side of not having to install their own um heat pump i'm sure i didn't i haven't looked at the actual costs <laughs> yeah, but definitely. it's austin so you know how Austin. i don't know him <laughs> it, it may not be but you never know so um but yeah like last things would love to touch on is just kind of you know here are some of your predictions for next five years um plans that criterion and, and just kind of uh yeah kind of end with sort of the looking forward uh, into the future and some of the, the predictions slash goals and, and hopes for geothermal, but also criterion. Yeah, of course. I, I love this question. We talk about the five-year vision a lot. And, you know, we really see the industry going to mid to low enthalpy geothermal reservoirs. And and the reason is because the technology evolution is is there and, and we're participating in it. Um I'll touch on the technology before I go there. We also have to mitigate the elongated exploration and infrastructure builds and all the paperwork associated with geothermal. Um, We can do this in many ways through policy, of course, but we can also do this with technology. So having those screening tools that we've talked about that are proprietary to our business, um, we, we really see that as intellectual property. We are going to mitigate the risk, reduce the time to market and reduce the time to, to revenue. And that's going to help our investors to get money out faster. Right. But the, but the technology evolution has to be there and, um, organic Rankin cycle turbines are what makes this mid to low enthalpy geo- geothermal reservoir possible for power generation. Um, there are system today's that work, but these things get, get built like unicorns. So, you know, we have to customize every ORC turbine and that 
create some some timeline. So it is the longest tail in our timeline. It's 18 to 24 months. So mm. when we talk yeah. about the demonstration projects, um, either we do the demonstration with standard technology or we do the demonstration with these big unicorns. And we're opting to do our demonstrations with as much off the shelf as we can to reduce the timelines, knowing that when we go bigger, we have to we have to have these um, custom built things. And so standardization of the ORC turbines is is absolutely crucial in the long term for driving down costs and for also uh, shortening the timeline. But there are other technology solutions that we see as well. And you mentioned heat pumps. Uh, industrial heat pumps are extremely important in this and could do a lot for the industry. And I think you hear a lot of industry experts talk about what needs to happen in heat pumps. The DOE is talking about heat pump innovation, et cetera. But there are also other advancements in CHP. So the, the, um, combined heat and power solutions where we're not just creating the power, but we're also leveraging direct heat applications. Um, you know, the, the opportunity there is significant. You lose so much efficiency when you convert this heat to, uh, to power. It's, it's like a 10 to 12% efficiency, but, you know, direct heat applications are so powerful. And if we can really take geothermal and apply it in these direct heat situations across multiple industries, I think that we'll be driving energy efficiency in a, in a very positive way and decarbonization and also creating more flexibility in what I called that omnisourced energy production, right? How can we leverage uh, heat waste and turn that into, you know, in other sources of energy? How can we combine this with biomass? How we can, you know, leverage the oil and gas there, yeah. but then, you know, power carbon capture and sequestration, yeah. you know, and we are talking about these things. How do you compress carbon today? You do it with diesel or power from the yeah. grid, but if you could do it with geothermal. And so, you know, there are so many applications that we've brainstormed and thought of and they they go beyond the district heating systems. You know, they they really do go into specific industries, specific use cases, potentially even replacing infrastructure as you know it today with something that's much more advanced. And so we definitely see that the technology evolution is going to be profound. And a lot of that is being supported and funded by governments worldwide. But the DOE is definitely focused on this area. It's an area that we're focused as well. We're not just looking to drill some wells. We're looking to integrate them back into industry. Um, and, And that's what I think is going to take geothermal forward. It's going to create economic advantage and competitive advantage with our customers, which is why our business model is so unique. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's a great um, summary and a great forecast of what I think, you know, even there was a recent article from Baker Hughes and Gazal was on the talking about the kind of five technology innovations and some of the same, same things. And so I think it's, um, it's great because there's just a lot of uh, I'll say demand on the side of companies such as Criterion kind of in the space of looking at it differently and peeling it back saying, all right, we've done a lot of this for a long time, but how can we, how can we kind of change some of the things? And you mentioned the ORC and just sort of the, some of these, these things that really will be a step change in, in geothermal. And so I, and I love the combination because they all, they all can work together. And, you know, I was talking with uh, green fire, um, you know, Joseph and talking about the, the green hydrogen piece and all these and like the lithium uh, mining. And, and I've talked with a company in Iceland that takes the silica that normally would be looked at as a 
you know, nasty byproduct and something to deal with uh, as an OPEX cost and they turn it into health products. And so it's mm -hmm. like, it's just, there's just so many aspects that you could spend an entire another hour talking about just the ways to integrate, you know, geothermal into like life cycle, not just, you know, the only the grid or only heating, um, you know, there's just... There's a lot of a lot of flexibility there for resilient infrastructure. So and there's um, also Bitcoin mining. <laughs> yes. right. yeah. Hey, that I mean, El Salvador is like leading the way of trying to <laughs> trying to launch massive data centers with their geothermal energy. So I, you know, it's uh, Bitcoin mining with natural gas is a thing, and so hey, geothermal can jump in the jump in the mix. Yeah, I love um, I love how creative the industry is being around this, and I'm I'm glad to be a part of it. And we're we're excited to watch the innovation coming from others as well. It's it's really fun. Yeah, it's an exciting time, and that's what I love. And I and I told you know told Danny when I talked to him, I've told almost everyone that I've talked to in the podcast that something I love about the geothermal industry is that, and not that every other industry doesn't do this, but just as you mentioned at the beginning, obviously there's still competitive advantage and there's obviously always going to be proprietary things that you're developing. But in the overall sense of the industry, everyone is just so open to sharing knowledge and use cases and ways that, Hey, we struggled with this. We ran into this roadblock, you know, have you guys encountered this or any way that you can, you know, Think, you know have you overcome that have you figured out a way and I, and I love just the 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 mutual urgency to say geothermal just needs to get to this place how can we all like we're all working at it on the same direction trying to run you know together and not and not competing and I just I've, I've loved that since and and obviously it can even grow more in terms of the exposure of what people are working on and doing and that's the little piece that I'm hoping to just add with the this podcast is to educate, obviously, the, the lay person who doesn't know anything about geothermal and be able to understand what it is, but also hope to share between companies and between the world and, and what other people are are doing. So, uh, you know, have really appreciated our conversation and you coming on. It was an, an amazing perspective and, and really a, a very unique one that I learned a lot from just your background and the things you've seen and encountered to where now you're applying that with criterion on geothermal. And, and I really do think, um, geothermal is, is, um, you know, poised for a big breakout, but also I think criterion is definitely one of the, um, exciting companies that, you know, I follow obviously, and, and I'm always really excited. The, the announcement and the investment was super exciting and I was just so happy and, excited for the team and, and definitely really looking forward to what comes out uh, of Criterion in the next, you know, year to two years and, and beyond. And so um, really appreciate you taking the time and hope that everyone listening also took away something and just learned a little bit more about Criterion's whole entire culture and plan, but also just uh, the geothermal case, business case in the, in the why now. But as everybody knows, and, <laughs> and Bridget does too, because she's listened to some of the episodes, so they're not a total... Total blindside hot seat, but we have to ask the hot seat three questions before we we let uh, Bridget go. So the first one, obviously, is the uh, advice to your younger self or someone in in you know college and just trying to figure out what they want to do with their career and life. I really have to think about this one, Nick. But if I were to say the most important thing that I've ever learned that I could look back and say if I learned it sooner, it would have been really valuable. Is what 
learning to say no to the things that you need to say no to as early as possible is so helpful in preventing yourself from banging your head against the wall and, uh, and, and, and stressing yourself out and really burdening yourself with things that aren't going to be um, productive. And so, you know, learn to say no. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good one. That's a very, that's a, that hits home. Cause I definitely have to learn. I had to learn that <laughs> one sometimes the hard way for, for things in, in life. So, uh, very good one. Um, but, uh, yeah. So number two, uh, basically, you know, Favorite location, project, or just experience that you've gotten to have uh, across your your time and in your career? I have to talk about the project because it really was a unique opportunity in my career when I um, when I got pulled in to do co innovation with the Smart Grid Technologies. So, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we were looking at Smart Grid and thinking, what are we going to need to be able to do to be able to support distributed energy, microgrids, things like that? And and it actually started with how do we fortify the grid we have today because grid reliability is so important. Um, and having a data management plan around that. And at that time, I was working with an inventor at HP, and HP is the largest producer of silicon in the world. They mm-hmm. use the silicon for sensors that go into their printers. And the way we thought about it was if you think about what a piece of paper looks like under a microscope, it's a really dirty, messy place to be. So we had to have these amazing sensors that shot this ink on the page in a very perfect way. And what else could we do with that sensor? Well, this inventor invented something called the Memorister. It was memory for different attributes or different mm. senses. So we could apply 16 different attributes in this sensor technology to determine what can, what's going on in industry and do something about it. Those were things like salinization, heat, pressure, vibration, all different sorts of attributes that could cross-correlate, 16 of them at the time, to figure out what was going on. And so, you know, we were looking at things like transformer load sensing to determine when a transformer is going to blow. So you can roll a truck to fix it at a time, as an example. And just all these self-healing things. We were looking at H2S detection, like how to prevent people and birds from dying from corrosion on a pipeline, things like that. So definitely the coolest thing I've ever done um, and, and probably the um, the biggest cross-functional team I've gotten to work with. Yeah. Wow. That's a very, that's really fascinating. Um, thinking about just, yeah, in, like just how that's kind of, yeah, it's wild. It piece, I mean, I didn't even know that HP was the largest producer of silicone. <laughs> that's wild. But that's a, yeah, it's crazy just thinking about that of all the automate, just that the sensors and things like that that are being innovated, but also like or will continue to be to do all these, you know, to helping us respond better and be more efficient. So that's a that's a really cool uh, experience. And so the last one that we'll leave the listeners with is your you know favorite book book recommendation. Um, you know, just anything that is is on the mind. Perfect. I'm going to give you two answers. The first one is I have to apologize for being as big of a geek I am. But when I first started diving into this industry, um, I'm I'm just really a glutton for I want to I want to soak up as much knowledge as I can. And I was trying at the time to figure out um, how benzene was made in a chemical manufacturing facility for one reason or another. I don't even remember why, but I wanted to know about benzene. And I ended up finding this bookstore in downtown Houston, which has since moved to only online post COVID, but this bookstore is called the Brown bookstore. Mm -hmm. And 
it is the best source for any sort of very technical um, process like technology type industry type books like textbooks, but in but in layman's terms. So I have this entire bookshelf full of like electric, you know, generation for dummies kind of stuff. And, um, and these books are not cheap, but you can find, you can actually find these books still online at the Brown bookstore. So that's my favorite collection of books, but my favorite book in general is a book called the one thing. And this is a book that essentially focuses on, Um, What is the one thing that you could do that would make everything easier or everything unnecessary in sequential order to achieve your goal? And what is the one thing you could do today? What is the one thing that you could do for the next year? What is the one thing you could do for the next five years? And it's a really great book. It's by Gary Kelly. Um, The one thing is super powerful and it goes back to that answer of tell yourself no, right? Because um, you can't do everything. Yeah. No. So do the most. So do the most um, effective thing. Line up your dominoes. Yeah. No, that's a really good. You know, that's it's a really good lesson and a really good piece of advice to take home. And and yet another book that I'll have to add to my list. That my list is growing far too far too large for my current pace of reading. I need to pick up. Need to pick up my pace here with all the great books I've I've been recommended for. Uh, on the show. But uh, again, thank you, Bridget, so much uh, for coming on. Uh, it really was uh, an honor and a pleasure to talk with you uh, today. And and I really do think that it was a valuable um, conversation as they always are. And I, I always learn so much from these and, and know that the, the listeners do too. So I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, just thank you for taking the time to come on um, and, and talk with us. Well, it's my pleasure, Nick. Thanks for being a friend to Criterion Energy Partners, and we look forward to many years to come. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll continue being a cheerleader and championing for Criterion and geothermal as a whole. And so uh, everybody out there, if you if this is your first time listening in, make sure you subscribe and, and like the show and leave a comment. And if you're, you've been here for the whole time or, or a while, thank you for the support and for listening to these wonderful conversations and and continue to support it and share it with anyone you think would also enjoy these conversations. So uh, thank you everyone. And and again, we're here on a quest to bring awareness to the heat beneath our feet. So hope that you will join us as we continue on that quest. Thank you everyone. And we'll talk soon.